0: Today is April 15th. Famous day when you're supposed to send in your taxes. But this year, since it's on a Sunday, they give you until tomorrow, midnight, uh, to get your taxes in. Uh, I don't know, have you noticed that the tax forms are getting simpler every year? I mean, we've always had the 1040, all right? A few years ago, they came up with something they called the 1040EZ. This year, they have a better one. It's called the 1040 Really Easy. Yeah, it only has two lines to it. Line number one, how much money did you take? Line number two, send it in. We, we, we love we to pick on the IRS. But Did you ever think what it would be like to be an IRS agent? I mean, every year, if you're an IR agent, you know that some newspaper reporter is going to call seven seven different IRS offices and he's going to ask every one of them the same tax question and he's going to get seven different answers. And the newspaper reporter is going to write an article ridiculing the IRS and saying, how can those doofuses expect us to get our taxes right when they don't even know how to do it? Or if you're an IRS agent, somebody comes in for an audit. They're sitting across the desk from you. They're smiling at you. But inside they're seething. They're acting like you, like they act toward a cop who pull, pulls them over for speeding. Okay? Smile sweetly. You know he can do you a lot of damage. Don't let it be any worse. But inside you're thinking, why don't you leave me alone and go after the real crooks? Or if you're an IRS agent, and you meet somebody and they say, um, what line of work are you in? What do you do for a living? You never say, I'm an IRS agent. No, 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 you, you say, I work for the government. Or maybe you say, I work for the Treasury Department. I mean, it's, it's tough to be an IRS agent, it is. In biblical times, they, uh, they didn't have IRS agents. Uh, instead, the way that imperial Rome collected its taxes, it was through something like a franchise system. Imperial Rome would take each of their conquered territories and they would offer them up for highest bidding of who would like to collect the taxes in that area. Okay? And whoever was the highest bidder paid their bid to Rome. That's how Rome got its money. And then after that, you were the franchisee to collect as much taxes as you could get. From the territory you had purchased. So if you bought Egypt, you were the highest bidder for Egypt, and you won the bid at 10 million, and you sent 10 million into Rome. And then if you could get 12 million out of Egypt, you made a nice profit. If you were the highest bidder for Palestine at 6 million, and you could squeeze 7 million out of that territory, that was a million dollar profit for that year. And so the highest bidder would have the freedom to collect taxes. Sometimes the highest bidder would actually subdivide his territory. And he would subcontract it out to other bidders. He might say to somebody in Galilee, Who in Galilee wants the privilege of collecting the taxes in Galilee? Highest bidder gets it. Send me the money. Because he'd already paid Rome. And then whoever bought Galilee could get whatever they could. And so the tax collector in biblical times was not a bureaucrat. He was an independent businessman. He was an entrepreneur. In fact, with a little bit of creativity, ingenuity, and emotional toughness, he was on the fast track to becoming rich. He was a venture capitalist. We come across one of these tax collectors in the Bible, In fact, we are told he is the chief tax collector. That means he is the original highest bidder for Rome. He has purchased the entire province of Palestine. He has subcontracted out certain parts of it to other people and has already recouped his entire investment. He kept a few of the plum cities for himself the ones that really generated the most revenue, those are his, and with them, he is becoming extremely wealthy. He's a complex man, this tax collector. Like many people today, he is a mixture of conflicting thoughts, contradictory emotions. On one hand, he has the normal desire to make as much money as possible. He wants a good house. He wants to eat out. He wants to set himself up for retirement. He has the normal urge to do as well as possible in life. But on the other hand, uh, he's not real happy with some of the things he's doing to make that happen. He's doing things he never thought he would do. He's become the kind of a man he never thought he would become. The reason for that is that he was cheating people to become wealthy, and he knew it, he knew it. Here's how it worked. There were certain guidelines about how much taxes you could assess but the system was open to abuse. For example, suppose a merchant comes to the port of entry, and the merchant has some product that he wants to bring into the country and to turn over for resale to uh, somebody in the country. And as he comes to the port of entry, the guidelines say that he is to be assessed 20% of the retail value of what he's bringing in. So, let's say he's bringing in some silks, and the expected retail value is $2,000. Well, 20%, $2,000, $400. That's what the guidelines say the tax collector should get. But the abuse came when you said, who decides what the retail value is? What's to stop the tax collector at the port of entry saying, I think you can get 4000 2, no 2, no 4000 I think you can get 4000 for those silks 20% 4000 that's uh, $800 not $400 And the merchant says I can't get 4000 from that you're crazy Oh I'm sure you can if you try you're a good promoter In other words the tax collector could up the resale value and double his taxes And if the merchant said, you're you're an idiot, there's no way I can do that, and started to get violent, tax collectors would just motion the local police, and they'd come over and smooth things down. If it looked like the tax collector was going to say, phooey on you, I'm out of here, I don't need to sell here, then the tax collector, all right, all right, all right. $2,000, fine, okay, in you come. Give me the 20%. And then later, once he was turning them over to some retail shopkeeper, he would arrange for that shopkeeper to take him to court. The shopkeeper would swear in court that when the importer started to unload stuff, it became apparent he had not declared everything. He had smuggled in goods past the tax collector. And the shopkeeper's testimony in court would convince, convict the shopkeeper. He'd have to pony up money for this non-existent smuggled good, and he'd have to pay a fine besides. It was always easy to find a cooperative shopkeeper who would take a little kickback. It was a neat trick. And the tax collector had pulled that scam many times. But in the process, something inside himself deteriorated. He lost a piece of his self-respect. And he lived with that sense of, I'm, I'm dirty inside. Something inside not right. There's a restlessness, but he, he tried not to think about it because he didn't know what to do about it. He knew that life was slipping off the track that he wanted. He'd heard about a man named Jesus. Jesus was famous. Young rabbi, bold, courageous, in touch with God, full of integrity. But the thing that most interested him in what he heard about Jesus was that he kind of heard that Jesus had a different attitude toward tax collectors. The people in the town shunned him. They wanted nothing to do with him. Among decent people, he had no friends. Nobody invited him over to their house. Nobody came if he invited them to his house. They put him in the same category with prostitutes and thieves. They called him a sinner. He's a sinner. He's a cheater. He's a defrauder. And he knew it was true. Inside, he knew. Yeah. But he heard that Jesus seemed to have a different attitude. In fact, someone told him that inside Jesus' inner circle, there was a tax collector. One of Jesus' closest friends was a tax collector. A man named Levi, Matthew. Matthew, well, he knew Matthew. Matthew was the guy up in Galilee he had sold a subcontract to up in Galilee. Wondered how Matthew was doing up there. If Jesus would take a tax collector into his inner circle, and maybe if he could somehow get in touch with Jesus, he could get some kind of an answer to what was going on inside him. But he didn't know how to do that. He didn't know who could put him into touch with Jesus. And then one day he heard Jesus is coming down the road and is going to pass through his town. He decided this was his chance. Maybe he could somehow make contact with Jesus. And he did. And the answer he got might be one you're interested in. Let's turn to the story as Luke gives it to us in, Matthew 9, in Luke 19. Luke 19. If you're using the Bible underneath your pew, it'll be page 1116. 1116. I'll give you time to hunt it. Page 1116, Matthew 19. Page 1116, Matthew 19. We read that uh, Jesus is entering the outskirts of Jericho and he is on a path to pass through the town. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He was the original highest bidder to Rome. He was rich. Jericho was a port-of-entry city. Jericho was the place where most of the merchants had to come through. That was the port of entry. Anyone bringing in silks, spices, merchandise, they had to pay the assessed taxes. And whoever owned Jericho, whoever was the tax collector for Jericho, had the golden goose, or had the goose that laid the golden eggs. And that's why we read, Zacchaeus was rich. Jericho was on Jesus' path. He is coming down from the north, and he intends to go into Jerusalem, and Jericho is on his route to get through. Zacchaeus figures this is his chance. He closes up his custom shop. He runs to the street where Jesus is going to come down with the idea of just seeing Jesus maybe going up to him, and who knows. But when he got to the street, it looked like everybody else had the same idea. The street was packed. It was like everybody was lined up for a parade. Zacchaeus tried to, yeah, three, four rows deep, he's trying to find, (laughs) they're all so tall, (laughs) so big. Maybe it's because he's so short but he doesn't want to admit that. So he, he, he tries to squeeze in, you know, and when they see who it is, <clears throat> this is their chance to let him know what they think of him. And as he's bumped and kept out and poked and elbowed, after about the third or fourth time, he hears somebody laugh and say to somebody else, looks like the tax collector's a little short today. And it hurt him, how much they hated him. He doesn't know what to do. Half a block down the street, he spots a a tree. He has an idea. And we read in verse 3, He was seeking to see Jesus but on account of the crowd, he couldn't see him because he was small of stature. He was short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, where he could tell that Jesus was going to pass down that part of the street. Sycamore tree was a good tree to climb, lined the streets. Sycamore tree was a good tree because it had low branches that were really thick, and they forked out in all directions. And it was not hard to a little bit of a jump, grab one of those branches, hoist yourself up, and settle yourself in the tree. And from that higher vantage point, he is able to watch and wait. He can kind of hear that Jesus' group is coming down. And pretty soon, the group comes into focus, into sight. He sees Jesus in the middle of his circle of friends and close followers, and they're coming down the street. And the people in front of him are shouting and waving, but As he looks, Jesus seems to be scanning the crowd as though he's looking for someone. Matthew taps Jesus on the shoulder and points to the sycamore tree. Jesus looks, says something to Matthew and then starts walking toward the sycamore tree where Zacchaeus is. He gets underneath and says, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry up down, hurry down. Come on, hurry up down. I'm inviting myself to your house for lunch today. I just have to have 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 lunch with you. I must eat at your house today. Come on, let's go. Verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, came down, received Jesus joyfully into his house. I mean, Zacchaeus has no idea what's going on. How do you know my name? What? Me? You? My? Yeah. And the crowd parts and Everybody watches Jesus and Zacchaeus go into Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus opens the door. Jesus goes inside, shuts the door, and there they are inside the house. The crowd outside is buzzing. Somebody comes up to somebody else and says, hey, where's Jesus? Somebody told me he was coming down the street. Where is he? And the answer was, he went into that house. Can you believe that? I said, he went into Zacchaeus' house. He's having lunch with him. And the person said, you're kidding me. He's eating with a sinner? In their culture to eat with somebody was the highest form of acceptance and friendship. It was an indication of affection and delight in each other's company. And the crowd buzzes. Verse 7, when they all saw it, they said, they grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? We don't know what went on in that house. Luke does not tell us, but it's apparent that they talked about Zacchaeus' restlessness. They talked about what was hurtful in his life, what was dirty, His unease. Because when the lunch was over and they came out, Zacchaeus was a different man. From his porch, he made an announcement loud enough that everybody on the street could hear. He said, verse 8, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, if I have cheated anyone, I will restore it fourfold. I will give it back four times what I took. That was what the Old Testament said. If you stole something from someone, you paid it back 400%. If you stole a sheep, you gave the person four sheep. Zacchaeus is promising to look back over his past records and every person he can find that he cheated or defrauded in any way, he will make it up to them 400% in return. And for whatever is left over, half of that, he's going to give to the poor. And Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this man. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Today this man has stepped from darkness into light, from unease into peace, from sin into forgiveness. Salvation has come to this house. Why? Because, as Jesus continued saying in verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek. The Son of Man came to seek, to look for, to find, the one who was lost, and to save him. My friend, maybe you're kind of here today, and your life maybe is a bit like Zacchaeus, Things are uneasy. Restless. You've done things you never thought you would do. You don't like everything about the person that you've become. What weighs on you is your sin and the awareness that you need to be saved from the penalty of it. And that's what Jesus wants to do this morning. This morning, he's seeking you. He's seeking you. He's seeking you. He wants to save you. You're lost from God. He wants to bring you back. He wants to take your sin on himself. He wants to pay your penalty for you on the cross. He wants to lift it off of you. He wants to remove it from your history. He wants to put it on himself and pay its penalty. And as he lifts your sin off of you, he puts something of himself in its place. He puts some of his innocence, his purity, his wholeness. He puts that in you. And the result is that you have a peace and confidence. You'll spend eternity with God. Your sin is gone. That's what he wants to do, but you have to respond. You have to say, yes, (laughs) yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. But I do believe you paid my penalty on the cross and I trust that. I trust that for my salvation. You have to say that. I'd like to give you a few seconds right now to say that. Lord I am a sinner. But I believe that my penalty was paid. And I trust that. I trust that for my eternal life. Would you say that to Jesus now? Lord, if it were not for what Jesus did on the cross, we would all be lost. But out of his love and your compassion, he brought us back to you. And we live with the confidence that our sins are not held against us. They are removed and paid for. And with confidence, we live within your presence.